Rest in peace, Wayne Shorter. It seemed kind of sudden. He was up there in years, but when the he news was. came through, it, it, it seemed a bit sudden. It did. Yeah. He, he said a lot of great things in his life, and among them was this. Garrett McQueen, man. <laughs> Strong name. Strong name. Strong name. We'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about Wayne Shorter in the uh, in the finale here, but uh, I'd like to thank our uh, partners, uh, Schubert Club, since 1882. Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them and their upcoming program in a bit. Also, special thanks to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performance and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be more on Celestina also here in a bit. Uh, Wayne, but back to Wayne Shorter, he was one of those musicians whose name I knew. I played a, a Wayne Shorter Pops in Detroit. I always mm-hmm. talk about how that between that and the um and the and the composer who wrote Nightmare Before Christmas and 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 those movies Danny, scores, Elfman. Danny Elfman. So the Danny Elfman Pops and the Wayne Shorter Pops were the two most packed concerts mm. I've ever played uh in in my life. But Wayne Shorter is just one of the many, many people in jazz who always deserves our uh, celebration and during uh, Women's History Month here, uh, and maybe even women's, uh, you know, a lot of people have uh, for Black History Month, we're saying Black Futures Month, you know, Mm. so not just looking backward, Mm. but looking Mm -hmm. ahead. So maybe uh, the present of women in music is something that we could, you know, start thinking about for the month of March as well. When I'm thinking about you know, us losing Wayne Shorter, and I'm thinking about women's history. I'm thinking about women in jazz. There are all mm. sorts of folks that we can name uh, historically, but I thought I'd uh, get us started this week with uh, our own celebrations of women in jazz today. Uh, I'm going to get us started with Brandy Younger. So uh, when we talk about the history of women in jazz, one of those names that comes up that doesn't come up as often as it should is Alice Coltrane. Have, were you familiar with Alice Coltrane in like your jazz radio days? Was hers a name that I've came only, through? Well, I mean, I knew I heard the name, obviously, and I yep. knew the connection. But I've only recently come around to her music in the last year, year and a half. Yeah, same. I mean, for, for me, maybe over 2020, I was getting into some different sorts mm-hmm. of music. But listening to the harpist Brandy Younger uh, is how I got onto Alice Coltrane and so many other black women in jazz and in harp jazz, you mm-hmm. know, that that existed that we never talk about, women whose names we, we never say. Uh, so... Uh, Celebrating Brandy Younger here for all of the work she does and highlighting uh, women in jazz. I wanted to share just a little bit of a performance that she gave back in 2020. Speaking of uh, 2020, uh, in conjunction with the Arts Center at Duck Creek, the whole video, uh, the whole performance is a little over an hour long. Of course, I won't uh, share the whole thing, but I'll have it linked in the description. Some really incredible uh, music here. She opened with uh, the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice, and then transitioned oh so smooth into a work of her own called Tickled Pink. So here's a little bit of, of that. Thank you. 
I tend to find myself thinking about where music can live, what would be the perfect context for it. I think there are many ways that you could uh, slice that sort of aesthetic. A part of me is reminded of, you know, the mall in the 90s when I, <laughs> you know, the department store. Uh, but of course, I can also think about a, a seaside cafe or even just a, a nice uh, relaxing drive home in, That's in the evening. But no, no, no matter what the context from from that mall to the car or, or the, the seaside cafe, it's relaxation. It's leisure. It's mm. I'm not in a hurry. I'm just here. And to hear that realized with the harp, I think it's just. Uh, again, it, it shines a light on what we're ignoring today and even what we've ignored historically. Brandy Younger is not the first person to really dive into jazz and jazz aesthetics with the harp. We just don't really talk about it. And when you find yourself sort of gently swaying back and forth like I was, I mean, I'm not familiar <laughs> with that track. Yeah, a gentle sway. And, yes. that's, and that's one of those ones where when it's over, you go, oh, Play it again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Give it another one. But anyway, shout out to uh, Brandy Younger, you know, a very, very, very incredibly uh, important woman in jazz. When you think about women in jazz, who comes to mind for you? Oh, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that's going to expect me to immediately go Sarah Vaughn or, you know, some, some, very important, some deep track. But no, it's Esperanza Spalding is the one that comes to mind first. Why Esperanza? I saw her play live before I heard any of her recordings. So I got spoiled that way mm. to hear that live performance. But then I just devoured the the albums that she had out. Her live performances are incredible. Look at some of her festival recordings. Um, uh, you remember in Opus 25 when we talked about how Nirmala Rajasekhar just had an aura, an aura of peace mm-hmm. around her, a goddess-like level of of existence around her and i feel that with esperanza she just does nothing wrong yeah and and she chants as well yeah there's a there's a a connection there man we we've shared some esperanza spotted on triloquy before um you know black is beautiful and and all sorts of incredible tracks she played that wayne shorter pops that i played by the way in detroit so i I performed with esperanza before i even got to meet her but (laughs) but what is there an esperanza tune or performance that that you'd like to highlight yeah because at that concert she did uh wild is the wind Mm. And that's a high bar. I and, mean, yeah, I mean, because that's Nina's song, right, as far as I'm concerned. Right, and and for my money, she got right up there. It was it was a wonderful introduction to her music. Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away. For my love is like the wind Wild is the wind Give me more than and that performance lives on an album called Chamber Music Society. So, oh. there, so there's that connection between our idea of chamber music, classical music, and uh, how that connects to different parts of the world and different aesthetics. So the, the thing that's coming 
straight to mind for me is the incorporation of that bandoneon right. in the in yep. the recording. That's very much cafe. That's very uh, Piazzolla, you yep. know, music of the Americas. And, you know, even, I, I think about his work as a composer. If you're familiar with, you know, his, his legacy, bringing in the dance music and the cafe music as classical. You know, he was trying to decolonize classical music in his own way. During during his time, and when you talk about the you said the uh, the the album or the ensemble, the album is called the Chamber What Chamber Music Society. So she really does treat that like a tone poem too. I mean that mm-hmm. that that track hits several different levels all throughout. I mean it's a it's a a whole symphony in that one track. So from the Brandy Younger to the Esperanza Spalding, we aren't really even talking about contemporary aesthetics that dive into electronics and you know Mm. these 808 beats that i think belong in the opera house and the concert hall and all that stuff we're we're talking about the same ingredients we're just baking the ingredients a little differently Mm -hmm. this idea of decolonizing classical music can be pretty intimidating or, or maybe even broad or esoteric for a lot of people. But I think recognizing the jazz tradition, so-called jazz, because some of the people, you know, reject that word. Yes, they and, do. Um, but so-called jazz as an example of American classical, for me, feels like a, a starting point of the the C-spot run aspect of, of the conversation of decolonizing mm-hmm. classical music. But maybe it's important to reinforce that point just to help people understand yes hip-hop and r&b and all of those things belong in the category of classical music as far as i'm concerned it's becoming for me just completely obvious that the music that we've just been listening to even in these few minutes should be classified as classical should be put on our concert stages put on our classical radio stations it just makes sense to me I understand what you're getting at, and and I agree with you on a lot of different levels. That what we're what we're dealing, what we're up against is is years and years and years of convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, dare I, I'm not going to say tradition, but you know, there's a history. There's a tra- here track record. Yeah, like public radio, classical radio has a track record of only playing. You know, it has to be uh, acoustic instruments, or it has to fit. You know, we're not going to play 20th century music. We're going to play everything mm-hmm. from the from the old dead white guys. You know, there's a there's a a, a big a, there, there's just a huge amount of tradition that you're fighting back against. So, how much pushback do you think is required? And I know our conversation about timelines and all that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, if you just give these aesthetics to audiences. There are going to be people who are going to complain. That's mm-hmm. that. That's a given, especially in a classical context. Do you think people would complain for a year, for five years, for fifty years, if the if our institutions just made the decision to include those aesthetics and what they use to define this idea of classical music? Do you think the the long suffering is worth it, and and how long will the long suffering be be necessary? I, Garrett, I really think that we're looking at something that's just going to be ongoing. Yeah, you know, because with with each new generation that comes up, they're taking their influences and and crafting their own. I mean, look at what happened to the composers of the classical era when the Romantics started right. doing what they did. Right, people were mad. People said, <laughs> "I'm never going to this concert hall again." But here we are. So we, 
in order for it to progress, we need to acknowledge the ones that are making the music in the moment. That's my opinion. One of the things that we're going to get into in the final movement this week, again, uh, to, to honor Wayne Shorter, one of the things that he said was, we so often mistake the temporary for the constant, something mm. that ultimately is temporary. We pretend that it's forever and we just remain attached to it. I guess what you're saying is that of all of the things in this world that are temporary, people mad about aesthetics and music is a constant. <laughs> it is a constant. We'll just always have that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but that attachment to this traditional, this so-called traditional aesthetic and definition of classical music is something that we're trying to get people to escape from. Once we can uh, help folks really see the broader picture of what can be included in this idea of classical music, people learn more about Brandy Younger. And mm. through Brandy Younger, learn about the historical women, you know, in jazz and the right. many women who have historically played harp jazz, you know, how that can be included in our repertoire. Hearing Esperanza Spalding as a regular part of classical programming can not only point people to more of her music, but to her activism. We talked mm, maybe mm -hmm. about a month ago, you know, yeah, the, Harvard. all the stuff at, at Harvard, you mm. know, so that, you, and you already said that people are here for the mess, you know, at least the, the next generation. So, yeah, you right. know, that's, that's the mess that yeah. can help these classical radio stations really grab that, that, uh, that younger audience. Mm. For, for me, all of the reasons to decolonize this thing called classical music are there. It benefits the artists, it benefits the listeners, it benefits the institutions, and ultimately it benefits history and the future. Testify. Who, who we can continue to engage. Let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Speaking of a, a gentle sway, I still do the gentle sway. I appreciate that, that. To that season four theme. Thank you for everyone for uh, returning to returning listeners. We couldn't do this without you. We greatly appreciate your continued listenership and support. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and expands it to include the jazz that we were talking about, uh, contemporary aesthetics, contemporary stories, and contemporary dialogues, all toward the ultimate decolonization of classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your extremely generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on March 12th, Schubert Club is hosting Randall Gooseby with pianist Anna Han. Violinist Randall Gooseby makes his Schubert Club debut with a program featuring works by Lily Boulanger, Maurice Ravel, William Grant Still, and the man himself, Beethoven. So you can mm. uh, check out that concert at St. Anthony Park United Church of Christ on Sunday, March 12th at 4 p.m. More information and tickets at schubert.org. Also, huge thanks to our friends over at Salestina. Uh, they have here when your resident artists are this good, you owe it to everyone to shine a giant spotlight on them once in a while. Uh, the, uh, Salestina will be featuring their resident artist showcase of Meredith and Yoshi. That's happening on March 24th and 25th with virtual options for March 25th. So if you aren't on the West Coast, you can still check that out and get more information at Salestina.com. 
Org. Jessica Harned of uh, the Classical Queens podcast joins me in the third movement today. We talk about women's history, shining a light on women composers, a little bit about her life as a musician, a black musician in Idaho. I mean, that's a that's a podcast in itself. <laughs> but but we but, but but we stuck with the, the topics at hand. So okay. that's coming up in the in the third movement. Uh in the second movement, we're gonna shine a light on a couple of black women in so-called classical on, in, on the Western European side of things who've been doing some interesting stuff. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to engage some uh, dialogue around Wayne Shorter in the final movement to um, honor his life. But for now, we're jumping into movement one. You brought in a pretty interesting piece of news this week, one mm. that I don't think I would have stumbled across Myself, what accidental do you think you want to give this? I want to give this a sharp. When I say early music, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? Okay, so my conditioned, colonized mind See? says to think about motets and and all of that sort of thing. My more decolonized mind forces me to hear that phrase and think about the spiritual. If I'm thinking about early music in the United States and in the so-called United States, Mm -hmm. there really is no earlier music with the exception of the musicking of indigenous people. But even through that lens, there are eons Mm -hmm. that are, that are being left out. I think for a lot of people, and let's, let's keep it to classical music listeners, you know, early music is like in the hundreds, you know, still after BCE. Right. But I found an article in news.artnet.com. Researchers in Vietnam discovered that two deer antlers languishing in museum storage are actually 2000 year old musical instruments. Uh, To start the article, Two deer antlers were excavated in Vietnam in 1990. Mm. So this has been a while. Thought at that time to be just, you know, really well-preserved artifacts. But after languishing in museum storage for decades, the objects have now been found to represent something far rarer, which is the earliest known string instruments to be unearthed in the region. So wouldn't you like to be the person who is looking at this thing and go, you know, look, look at the... Look, there's a perfectly round hole. Looking at here. this thing for 33 years. <laughs> but go on. I don't know for 33. Go on. You but said w- you w- said w- they dug it up in 1990. Right, and they put it in a box. <laughs> sure. Right. Sure. So and so they're looking at it and they go, "Wow, here's this hole is perfectly round. You could put like a tuning device, like a peg mm-hmm. in there." And there were grooves you know, where the antler meets the head, there's grooves that you could see they had sort of fashioned it in a way that strings could be stretched across that. Yeah. So how many boxes <laughs> in how many different museums do you think there are some sort of original instrument that we don't even, we haven't acknowledged yet? What comes to mind for me is looking at these ancient artifacts and going in your mind to music. So first of all, these, these are antlers, so they are actual bones. Mm -hmm. So I think when we think, at least when I think about archeology, span the first thing that comes to mind for me is dinosaurs and just Mm -hmm. finding old animal remains. I can see how it could be a stretch in some context to find something and make it out to be a musical instrument instead of just an, an old bone, it's just a bone. but yep. it, it sounds like based on, you know, what, what they have found with, with a closer look again, after 33 years, it's unquestionably a musical instrument. That's kind of, that's kind of cool. And think about 
the thought process that the player had. I mean, they had to find the bone mm-hmm. and think, hey, this is what I'm looking, this is what I've been looking for. Somehow they had a tool that made a perfectly round hole. They were able to figure out pitch. This upends, this could upend some scholar, scholarly research, don't you think? Sure. I mean, y'all around here complaining and, and can't show up to rehearsal on time, but these ancient <laughs> people had to go kill an animal or find a dead one. Find it. You know, I'm sure it took days to get that perfect hole in there. And if you messed it up, now you got to go find another <laughs> it's answer. It's no good. You know, so I, I think the, the other point is that it wasn't just something that was done. It was something that a lot of care went into, just the tradition of music just being a foundational part of the human experience. They say here that no other explanation for its use makes sense. Ancient chordophones would be played by musicians sitting on the floor. They draw a bow across the instruments, tighten strings, according to researchers. A primitive resonator may also have been used to amplify the musical effects. What does this do to the research that's in existence now? I'm not quite versed in ancient ethnomusicology or or musical archaeology, but I think the the main point that I bring to the table that you are highlighting as we uh, began this dialogue, the idea of early music is not really that early. It's really more contemporary mm-hmm, than anything. Mm-hmm. It's like when we talk about when we use the phrase early English. We think of Shakespeare, who was around in the 1400s, I think, but really that was early modern English. So like, oh, oh rather old English, you, you know, the pe- people will call that old English, but that's early modern English. Old English is a language that we can't understand. There, there are videos on YouTube that you can find sure. of old English, and it's not what we would think of English at all. So anyway, all, all of that to say early music really needs to expand. And I think if we think about early music at the collegiate level in this ancient way, actually, you know, digging, no pun intended, into early music, that could help decolonize the art form. If we're forced to think about the idea of classical musicking from this ancient Vietnamese context, how dare we center a whole semester on one part of the world and maybe 150 years or so and call that early music. And for anyone who wonders, well, what difference does finding this make? Uh, This is going to change the research. This Mm -hmm. is like finding a a jet airplane in the Jurassic. (laughs) You know, it's like it's not supposed to be there. The, The final quote here is the striking similarities between the artifacts we studied and some stringed instruments that are still being played. It suggests that the traditional Vietnamese music had its origins in the prehistoric past. Wow. Wow. So when we think about this concept of folk music, maybe maybe I don't know how appropriate it would be to, you know, contextualize this under that umbrella of folk music, even ancient folk music. But mm. for, for, for the sake of this dialogue, I'll I'll say it. The ancient Vietnamese people, you know, and, and I'm not a, a historian or a researcher, I would imagine that this bone instrument was not created for the sellability of music or the <laughs> the marketing of music or creating genres to to build walls between communities it was just musicing i'm think i think about folk music when i think about that because what is the music today that is that does music exist outside of financial ecosystems out of what's marketable out of what's sellable out of how we reinforce a narrative or disprove a narrative through the concept of genres. Is folk music 
alive today? Does it exist? And probably in every house. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're making, think about the person in Vietnam that might have used that instrument. They're bored at night. <laughs> <laughs> or you know? mission driven, maybe we, you know. But, you know, a lot of times music was passing the time. Mm. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, and think about those long, dark nights of the winter. Oh, you got to have something. Their only entertainment was the fire. If yeah. they were lucky enough to have a fire. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I bet everybody even just tapping on their, on, on, a, on a tabletop could be a way of musicking for them. It, it exists in every house. Well, you know, tables, according to the film Passion of the Christ, weren't invented until Jesus was around. So, oh. so if this is BCE, they didn't have a tabletop. Didn't to, have a table. On, you know? mm. Well, <laughs> imagine, uh, I, I bet you everybody at some point sings yeah. or hums along to something mm -hmm. or might make something up as they're vacuuming or whatever. There's endless possibilities. Yeah. Well, Thanks for bringing that in, and thanks to all of the researchers who discovered this antler instrument. I hope we've discovered some more we, you know, like I'm the one digging, but I hope more <laughs> instruments are discovered. We are going to listen to some traditional Vietnamese music to transition, but if you had to pick a part of the world to really, you know, take the backhoe and try to find some ancient instruments, is there a place where you would be really curious to see what musicking was like? Thousands and thousands of years ago? Virtually all of Asia. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that just has, I think you have the best shot mm -hmm. at finding things there and probably far more interesting. And even when I think about countries like China, they have recorded history that goes back five, right. 6,000 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, they have all of that. And there was something that existed before that even. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about what musicking must have been back in those days. And if there were dialogue around the music, you know, court music or the music for the emperors versus music of the people and, and that sort of thing, maybe that is a constant, the, <laughs> mm. the, the highbrow high versus so-called highbrow versus so-called folk or, or music of the people, peasant music, as yeah. Beethoven and them would, would say. Anyway, uh, so here's a, a little uh, music to uh, honor the discovery in Vietnam, uh, a, a demonstration of an instrument called a Dan Bao. This comes uh, from Explore Hanoi. I'll have the link in the description, but here's a little bit of this to get us to our next accidental. a lot in our world today, just in general, our ears are very busy. But when I think about way, way, way back when, mostly it was nature, I guess, if there was some sort of verbal communication among people, but hearing something musical must have been so striking mm. back in those days when you didn't just have an, uh, uh, an iPod, your, your phone or, or whatever to, to, to get music into, to hear something like that in way in the distance, mm. it, it must have been completely an attraction different. sure you want to go and seek it out so do you think the person that found that antler bone thought 
man, when I learn how to play this, they, I'm going to have so many mates coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be the number one date. Maybe, <laughs> maybe so. But I'm also thinking about you have enemy tribes or whatever around. Maybe you didn't want the party to be too loud because you don't know, you don't want them to know where you are. I don't know. Just, just so many things to, to unpack there. What instrument of today <laughs> in 10,000 years is somebody going to dig up and not immediately recognize it as an instrument? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a, a cajon. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, so this must have been what people peed in back then or something. <laughs> you know, like, I don't <laughs> that I was not expecting you to say that. Um, I don't know. Um... And it's hard to say because folks living back in those days would obviously see this deer antler, even without the string attached or whatever, and say, oh, that, that's a such and such. But, you know, change. No, nah, didgeridoo's already been, nah. I, I don't know. That's a good one. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, shout out to all of the researchers and ethnomusicologists and uh, musical archaeologists. There are there. some grad students that are just so excited. I mean, and sudden. can you imagine the conferences? I mean, <laughs> oh my God, the debates that are happening at the hotel bar about ancient instruments and mm. things. God bless y'all. I love it. All right. Well, uh, we're, uh, we have a second accidental this week. I'm going to give this one, hmm, I'm going to give it a natural because it's kind of in the middle for me. It comes from HBCUGameDay.com. The headline is, Deion Sanders wants Colorado banned to find some HBCU influence. So when I just read that headline, really what I read is, Deion Sanders wants the Colorado band to add some seasoning to what they're doing. It sounds like it. <laughs> What's been your experience? Have you had the pleasure of seeing an HBCU band in person, like live? I have been to band competitions, but I can't say whether or not any of them came from an HBCU. Yeah, it's definitely a different experience from predominantly white institutions. It's not just a conceptual thing. Uh -huh. Aesthetically, it's a completely different experience. And Deion Sanders wants to bring that to where he's working now. I'll read a little bit here. <laughs> the, the article starts out with newsflash. Deion Sanders is no longer at an HBCU. The former Jackson State head coach is now at Colorado, but it's clear he's looking to replicate some things about his HBCU experience, including particularly from the marching band. That first sentence, newsflash, Deion Sanders is no longer at an HBCU. It really reminded me about the conversation that happens among so-called classical musicians about going to an HBCU as opposed to going to the conservatory or some sort of other predominantly white institution. I didn't have, I've, I've talked about this a lot on Triloquy, as a high school junior or senior, I didn't have it in my mind to go to an HBCU because the concept of an HBCU just wasn't really fully embedded in me. I was, I was a first generation college graduate, so it's Same. not like my parents could say, well, you should consider it. Howard or Jackson State or FAMU. It just wasn't in my periphery. On top of that, my idea of wanting to be a bassoonist certainly didn't fit into that scheme of, of going to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And I think these days, HBCUs are still struggling, relatively anyway, to really attract the faculty mm -hmm. that can teach those instruments in that style of music that would you know ultimately attract the, the students. On the other hand, do we really need to be teaching so-called classical music at HBCUs. Is that not the place to really 
branch out and to decolonize. But then I also understand that blackness is very diverse and that includes the most traditional of Western European classical performances. So it's sort of a, a back and forth. But at the end of the day, I just don't like the idea of trying to shame someone for not being involved or leaving an HBCU or anything like that. It doesn't really seem very helpful, even though the conversation I think is is very important. My question is how much uh, input does a coach have in what the band does anywhere? Well, from my experience marching with the mighty sound of the South at the mm-hmm. University of Memphis, athletics were really the reason. So we didn't play when, you know, there was an active ball. There, there, right. there, there were just so many right. rules that we had to follow that uh, centered the, the team, the, even in basketball, you know, they, they take Trump and we are there. The band is there as an ornament to the athletics. I think that's one of the big differences between PWIs and HBCUs. In my experience, you know, going to stuff like the Southern Heritage Classic, the band is an equal party in some cases more paid attention to than the actual team, than the actual game. Halftime is game time, mm. as it was, as many people say. And at things like the Southern Heritage Classic in, in Memphis, the historic, you know, uh, annual meeting of Tennessee State University and uh, Jackson State University, there's a fifth quarter where people hang out, and that's what they're there for to see the battle of the bands, to see the bands go back and forth. So I think to answer your question, in some contexts and in the more uh, predominantly white institutions, I think the athletics have more of a, a chokehold on what the the band can do and that sort of thing. But at the HBCUs, it's completely different. They seem like equal parties. So would you have expected backlash from his action here? Of course I would have expected backlash. <laughs> I mean, where do but, you think we are? <laughs> I, right. I was just, I, I just want to take Okay, of course it didn't take long for folks online to start debating whether or not Deion Sanders was pirating the HBCU band culture Mm. after leaving an HBCU for a Power 5 gig. Valid? I am of the mind, especially in my more evolved mind, that, for example, jazz is black music. Jazz is also American music, and our recontextualizing dialogues and the way that we treat that aesthetic can help us get closer to a place where we're celebrating American aesthetics. I think it's the same here for what Deion Sanders is trying to do for this school in Colorado. Yes, the HBCU aesthetic is just that, a historically black aesthetic and approach to to marching bands. But I think he's doing a service by spreading that tradition and culture beyond the HBCUs in a way to honor the tradition, not only as black, but as American. So his additions... I mean, marching bands do covers of pop and rock songs, don't they? Yeah. So that's no different. In my mind, we we know that black people go to football games, especially uh, in Colorado at the at in Boulder. There there is going to be that attendance, but to do this, isn't it going to um, just uh, affirm the black population? And you know to to acknowledge, look, we're, we're, we're dishing this out for you. Sure, affirming the black population, but I think really affirming the generational population. When we're talking about college undergraduates, the folks at these games, we're talking about people who are 18 to 22 or, or 23 years right, old. Right. 
those kids, those white kids in their late teens are listening to more hip hop than I am, mm-hmm. you know, more, more, more rap and, and all that stuff that's than I have po- the time that's for. That's my point. So, the, so everyone is, be, the generation is being affirmed, I think. Yeah. So I don't understand how people can get mad for him pirating that when it exists in a different way already. Well, who are the people? I think we're talking about folks uh, who okay. just want to uh, preserve tradition and people who want to protect mm. tradition. You know, there's this okay. idea of the watering down of tradition, you know, with too much spreading, which I get, of course, on the other side of the conversation is, you know, keep that such and such music from, from out of here. Uh, mm. Deion Sanders uh, is quoted here as saying at HBCUs, it's kind of traditional that the bands coincide. I know it's a difference, but it don't have to be. We like one big happy family. So we go as you guys go. Certain things we like, certain things we don't like. I want to just get on the same page. And I think ultimately mm. that's what I'm highlighting and what I'm celebrating here. There is a difference of aesthetic. There's certainly a, a difference of approach. But from his perspective, the real root, the real spirit of that HBCU band experience within the context of a, a football game is about cohesion, about bringing people together, matching aesthetic and lived experience and what's popular with this thing, this football game that we're all at. Okay. I know that some people are asking this question in their mind right now, and I'm going to say it out loud. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) What does performance play in this argument? Say more, what does performance play? Okay, so at an HBCU, the band is going to be predominantly black, correct? Okay. At Boulder, it is not. (laughs) Okay, go on. (laughs) Oh, I think you get what I'm getting at. Louise Toppin was on the podcast, okay? Yes. And I asked her, can white choirs sing Negro <laughs> spirituals? Do you remember what she said? What, what she said was the respect has to be put on the music to the same degree that the respect is put on the Bach and, and the Beethoven and, and all of that stuff, which means you have to pay attention to the dialect. You have to pay attention to what is actually said. It's not weighed in the water, is weighed into water, mm-hmm. you know? So- Putting that level of respect is what opened the doors for the possibility of those white choirs to sing those spirituals. Now, when it comes to the bands, I think it's the same thing. You have to put respect on the way that HBCU tuba players really blow that thing, you Mm -hmm. know, like get a little bit of that edge. You have to honor choreography (laughs) as an aspect of the performance, which means if you're not a dancer, whatever, that's fine. That means you just got to practice a little harder because damn, I practiced my ass off learning that white uh, uh, Mozart and Marriage of Figaro and all that shit so that I could audition. So that that means y'all can learn how to dance a little bit and you can put in the extra effort. So like to answer your question, I think that the respect has to be put on it. If it's up, look, I was, I was the kind of student that just needed an A. No matter what, I will do anything I can. I imagine that there are a lot of other students like that. Maybe the the band programs need to pass out those grades appropriately, and the students will put a little bit more effort. And I don't know what's going on in Colorado. I'm not saying that they can't dance. But what I'm saying is the respect has to be there, the desire to really bring this aesthetic to life in the way that it should be brought to life. That desire has to be there if you know people are going to ask me. Can the white people do it? Are are they allowed to engage? Sure. Mm. Well, I mean, he's just starting out. So we're going to get uh, in the 
in the coming seasons, we're going to get a taste of whether or not they season it. Mm-hmm, and I hope they do. And I'll I'll be there with my joint in hand, having mm. a, a beautiful time. Are they, I wonder if they, maybe that's a non-smoking venue or something, but <laughs> I'll, I'll bring my gummy bears and have a great time watching, fun. watching Deion Sanders's ideas at work manifest. Uh, it says here, uh, just in closing, uh, at Jackson State, Deion Sanders famously used Here I Go by Mystical as his official, unofficial pregame theme music. It looks like he's got something similar planned at Colorado and he wants the band in on it. So to transition out of this accidental and into the second music uh, movement, we're going to listen to that composition. Here I go by Mystical. Let's take a listen. I'll see y'all on the other side. Y'all better get ready to rumble. Mystical definitely brought a very specific aesthetic to hip hop, especially when he was really popular in the, I would say the early oddies, like when I was in high school mm-hmm. and, and even middle school, there was a lot of mystical out there. But his specific rap uh, technique and aesthetic aside, how could you envision that track being realized through a band? So we have that boom, boom, boom. Wait, what instruments that's your low, get that? That's your low end. Okay. Your, your, I don't know. Uh, would that be tubas and trombones then? Yeah, yeah. And you have you, so you have that guitar wah wah. You can bring a guitar to the stands and plug them up. But if you just have your band instruments, who you think would be good at that wah wah? Trumpets. Yeah, give that to them. And half the time you can't hear the clarinets and, and piccolos and stuff anyway. Mm. But, but but maybe you just give them some decorations, so you have some sparkles to to what, go over the whole thing. What would you do for the quick fire part? Maybe that's maybe that's the woodwind or the saxophones. You know, you get 15, 20 saxophones doing something like that. Mm. Or hey, maybe you identify a um a Sprechstimme artist in mm. your band, you know, someone mm. who could do uh what Mystical did, give them a mic and and let's really have a party here in the stands, and you know. Go. So so now you got the crowd excited. They're making a little bit more noise. The football team thinks it's for them. So they're they're <laughs> more engaged. And the whole experience has just expanded wow thank you Dion sanders <laughs> for uh engaging this conversation and helping folks in colorado decolonize their thinking around music at football games but uh we're here in the second movement the, the second quarter we're here in the mm. second movement uh, where scott and i are gonna share some music that we've been spending some time with on our own this week how about you get us started this week what do you want to share with the people well uh, as I continue to deal with the fact that I'm in a house with no radar in it, mm. um, I find myself uh, watching a television show, and when it's over, I have no recollection of what I watched. I'm just tuning out. Mm. So I've been listening to more music. And I heard just a few tracks from Shui Fei Yang's release, Sketches of China, when it first came out. So I decided to really dig into it. And it's 22 tracks of traditional Chinese-influenced 
music played on guitar. She also brings in uh, a flute player and a, a, a gujung player as well. But I loved the way that she was able to put these two together almost seamlessly. Because I know that there are things that you can do to a guitar that will mimic a gujang, mm -hmm. but it's not, you know. So she's obviously paying attention, and you know, we we said let's pay respect to to the aesthetic and the heritage. So she's obviously doing that, but her guitar work on top of it is also, I mean, it, she's just a wonderful player. And the track that really stuck out that highlights the gujung and the way that it works along the guitar is called Fisherman's Song by Moonlight. Something that I've learned from listening to so many different types of East Asian aesthetics and 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 their classical music, you know, shout out to uh, Gao Hong who I've seen perform on the uh, Pipa live mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, many times. One of the things that she talks about is how historically and even today there are certain musical motifs as they exist on the traditional instruments that people just recognize as running. Or, or the setting sun, huh. or uh -huh. a waterfall. And, th and that's what comes to mind for me here. The tune is called Fisherman's Song by Moonlight. It's hard for me not to hear the uh, uh, Gojung. Is that the name of the? Uh, the Gujung, the, the, yeah. the Gujung, and not think about uh, the, the way that the moon might shimmer on a, on a lake, you know, and, and how that shimmer is impacted by someone uh, throwing a line or a net in there yeah. and then you know there's that fish that just escapes the net and, and the whole story that you can tell there really really interesting to hear you know those two as you just said how the guitar and the good jung both plucked stringed instruments and very similar in many ways but still different enough to have a mm -hmm. perfect sort of marriage, like very complimentary aesthetics. So obviously throughout the whole album, you'll get tracks that the, the Gujang is more prominently featured, but obviously Shui Fei is uh, the spotlight. She has impeccable technique. And there was something about this album that, you know, for a half hour or 45 minutes, I was taken to a different, uh, a different mindset. Mm. You know, I, I was thinking a little more, my mind was calmer. Um, it was, it was a, it was a help. You were I talking about it. needing a massage. That sounds like some uh, massage room music. <laughs> yeah, maybe, it does. Maybe, maybe you'll need to make the request when you <laughs> <laughs> stereotypical spa music. No, it's more than that, though. You know, it's um, it's traditional Chinese music that's uh, got both the uh, the traditional and more modern instruments. I I think that Sketches of China is one of her finest outputs. <sighs> What's this podcast called, real quick? Triloquy. Oh no. <laughs> We have the guitar with the gujung. The gujung is not a timpani. It's not a violin. It's something that's unmistaken, unmistakably outside of that Western European aesthetic that mm -hmm. we think about when we think about the phrase classical music. We do not have the pushback for that non-Western European music in our classical um... spaces, but we do have it when we talk about that jazz and this hip hop and other reasons. Why, why is that? You tell me. <laughs> um, I, I would suspect it is the color of the person okay. playing. Okay, never mind. Don't worry about it. 
Did I, did I just walk into a minefield here? What? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for bringing in that beautiful music. I can't wait to revisit that myself. I can't but... <laughs> wait to see what the inbox is going to look like on Thursday. Um, so I mentioned earlier that in the third movement, we're going to be, uh, I'm speaking with Jessica uh, Harned. And one of the things that she did, well, I'll highlight this in a bit. One of the things that she does with her violin playing is exploring far more than the orchestral repertoire. She even plays with a, a, a mariachi group mm. in, in Idaho. So thinking about black people involved in mariachi and other musical aesthetics south of the um, so-called United States border, I came across a woman named Lucha Reyes. So Lucha was a, a Peruvian singer. I'm just going to read a little bit here from the Wikipedia because I wasn't uh, familiar uh, she was a Peruvian performer and one of the most respected singers in her country and one of Peru's most famous Afro-Peruvian personalities. So when we think about uh, Mexican aesthetics, Peruvian, just general Central and South uh, American and, and, and North American uh, aesthetics that we put in that box of mariachi, mm -hmm. uh, just brown music, not as a pejorative, you know, but just that general aesthetic. We don't typically think about black people being involved in it, but there's a deep history of that, not only just black people, but black women. So among those folks was uh, uh, Lucha Reyes, one of 16 siblings, you know, but just wow. one of the many yeah. stories about how music and a love for music can not only, you know, give people a, a life that they want to live a, a better life, but can, you know, really shine a light on bigger topics like Black involvement in South and Central American aesthetics. I've just really appreciated getting to learn more about Lucha Reyes. Uh, there's a tune of hers called Mi Ultima Canción. My, my Spanish isn't great, but I guess that means my ultimate song. Ultimate or, song. Yeah, my, yeah. my, my greatest my song. Best, yeah. she, she has a, a, a tune titled as such, and it sounds a little bit something Esta like será, this. Tal vez, mi ultima en la inspiración cuando mi voz ya cansada por el tiempo le llegue su momento de decir adiós cantando esta canción cuando mi voz ya cansada por el tiempo le llegue su momento de decir adiós cantando esta canción en cada nota triste de esta mi canción habrá un recuerdo por todos los aplausos que en algún momento me hicieron feliz. No habrá Of course, I can't understand all of the lyrics, but there is a, a little bit of melancholy that I just see that recognize just slightly underneath that aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And that aesthetic that that sense matches of uh, the the history so uh in her final days she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and diabetes the diabetes caused her to uh go blind mm -hmm. so uh she asked a composer named pedro pacheco uh to write that tune uh mi ultima canción like here it translates to my last song um oh, okay. and uh on uh, in 1973 in october of that year one day before her death she sang that song at a, a well-known local radio broadcasting station and the uh following day she died so i mean that that really Amazing. is sort of her swan song her her final contribution to the world and something that i think we oh my gosh just need to learn more about mm. Women's History Month, you know, I love Fannie Mendelssohn, okay? Amy Beach, 
all of those people are great. There are so many more women whose stories need to come to the front and whose music needs to come to the front. Just as we were talking about with the jazz, to me, what we were just listening to is unquestionably classical music. It's classical music outside of a paradigm, outside of the Western European paradigm, but that doesn't not make it classical music. The story that goes behind that, the equity, the so-called DEI that you can engage by mm. highlighting Lucha Reyes, it's all there. And and I've, I've really, I'm, I'm feeling very grateful to have stumbled upon her and, and her aesthetic. What a great find. I'm feeling all of the music this opus so far. Yeah. I'm loving yeah, it. Yeah. Well, we got even more to go uh, going into our third movement. Um, I sit down and have a conversation with Jessica Harned. Jessica graduated from Boise State University in 2012 with a degree in violin. Following her graduation, uh, she worked to expand her knowledge of uh, her instrument uh, by way of further study and went far beyond the classical uh, genre. In 2015, she joined Mariachi Soda Acapulco in uh, Idaho. So even in Idaho, you know, there's some seasoning, musical seasoning happening up there. Uh, and she's now the host of a podcast called Classical Queens, where she highlights women from the past and the present who deserve a little bit more of our attention. So I'm really grateful to Jessica for uh, joining me on the Triloquy podcast this week. We're going to transition into my conversation with a performance that includes Jessica. This is the uh, November 1st, 2020. 15 performance uh, of Mariachi Soda Acapulco uh, that took place in downtown Nampa, Idaho, in celebration of Dia de los Muertos. So, a little bit of this to get us into my conversation with Jessica Harnett. At the time, I was coming from this place of scarcity, not having access to any of these women um, that I could like kind of see myself in. And so, um, and I wanted to like celebrate them in the same way I would celebrate my best friend who's achieving something great. I wanted to be like, yes, queen, mm. girl, you slaying, you know, I wanted it, I wanted to connect these people of the past to now. And so, and to celebrate them like in, in an everyday way, not just on occasion. And so that is why I chose Queens for the title of the podcast. And um, among the queens that you celebrate, that we all celebrate these days, are women like Florence Price. There are even people in the industry who say, okay, we need to go beyond Florence Price. There are other women, uh, certainly other uh, Black women and women of color to celebrate. But every week, almost every day, I'm meeting people who still haven't even heard of Florence Price. I wonder if you're having a similar experience. Absolutely. <laughs> I, think, I think just professionally, I think we we know who she is, we play her music, um, we teach her music, but um, but most audiences do not know who she is. I think kids still don't yet know um, <clears throat> who she is. And so I think it's really important to continue to, to perform her music, to talk about her story and to, yeah, teach the next generation. 
And it's one thing to uh, really think about uh, the historical queens that you highlight, which is, you know, very important. But I wonder if your work has led you to living and breathing women with whom you've uh, discovered who are writing music and participating in classical music. You know, I think because of where I am, I haven't necessarily connected with any classical musicians um, who I've been able to collaborate with. But outside of classical music, I do collaborate with like female composers who are brilliant. Um, one in particular is um, um, the leader of this uh, psychedelic prog rock band that I play in called Wend. And um, working with her has been kind of eye-opening. Um, it's as if she like holds within her like a different language um, um, as far as how she composes. Um, she'll just say, can you create something meadowy? And so it's, to, and we uh, work to figure out what that means and, um, and yeah, build, yeah, build around her thought processes. It's really cool. Psychedelic prog rock. That sounds yeah. very <laughs> interesting. Has, it is has very a, interesting. Has a broad uh, engagement of music always been a, a, a part of you or, or is it that more of a, more of a recent thing? No, it has not been always been I think um honestly I was um forced into starting to broaden my performing my I just had so much fear after undergrad about performing even like picking up my violin my body would just start shaking I in the practice room I couldn't play for uh quite some time um just after um a myriad of experiences and so my friend uh came to me one day and she's like you know you need to join the Mariachi and I was like Girl, I don't know why. And she was like, no, you need to join the Mariachis. <laughs> and she had been playing with them for like, since she was 10 for years. And she was like, you're going to learn how to be in front of audiences. You're going to learn how to bounce back uh, from some failures. And um, you're going to learn that performing is, is it, it is safe and you can, that you can do it again. And so, so I did, I joined the Mariachi and I have been playing with them for nine years. And um, like I, I learned how to improvise. I learned how to be a great chamber player. Like, I think I learned how to sing in Spanish in front of people. Like, I think from, from them, I learned how to perform. So, yeah. And all of those things that you're listing, you know, are things that we don't typically learn in music school. Or sure, yes, yeah, conservatory. true. I, I wonder where you are in your career now, how that impacts your view on the, uh, I, I almost he hesitate to use the phrase industrial complex, but the sort of pipelining that we put musicians through, the, the pathways that are very, very strict. Do you look back on your own trajectory and see it as stifling or too specific or, you know, not broad mm -hmm. enough? Well, I think to be a well-rounded professional player um, that can do more than just play in the orchestra, I think that as I left school, I didn't have I didn't have any of the tools to mm. to just really be like a competent performer in, in more than just um, the orchestra, and so. Um, I think the things that I've been doing outside of the orchestra have, I, I think I just have more confidence and I have more, um, I have more skills and tools to, uh, I guess, to build up my chamber playing, sure, to strengthen my chamber playing. But I, but uh, I think now instead of just being a performer, I can be a creator. If mm. that, yeah. And so I think it's like empowered me to, to be a competent and confident creator. How'd you get into violin in the first place? 
Yeah. Um, so I was adopted and um, my birth mom, that was the thing she wanted. She wanted me to have music. And so when she was writing letters back and forth to my parents, um, that is something that they promised her. And um, thankfully they are the most honest people. And so the minute I wanted music, I had it and I really appreciate that. And so I began playing piano when I was six and then violin when I was four or eight, I mean. And, um, but I saw someone on PBS perform the violin. I remember when I was a little, little, and I was like, I want to do that. And so, yeah. So it's been what, a long time with just, yeah. But was this all in, in Idaho? No, mm -mm. Okay. I was an Air Force child. So we were everywhere. I see. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm an Air Force child as well, born okay. in Spain and lived everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you understand the life. <laughs> oh yeah. So how did you end up in uh, Boise? Because I know that uh, you went to school there and, and have a position in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when my dad retired, we ended up moving to Boise because we had family here in this area. And, um, and I grew up here since then, since once he retired. And so, um, yeah, I ended up going to the school here just because it was like the most affordable option at the time. And yeah, and then that's that's that. Uh, I rem when I think back on my own trajectory as a bassoonist, I think about, okay, I'm learning how to play all this stuff, all of these composers, it's fun. And then one day I just realized, wow, I have never engaged music by a black composer or even by a, a woman composer. I was well into my career before I played a black composer or a woman composer for the first time. I wonder when you realized the degree to which women are marginalized in this field. Sure. Um, I remember specifically, it was my final year of undergrad and I, and I had asked, hey, can I, can my final recital just be music by women, music by people of color? And I remember my professor <laughs> specifically saying that um, women um, are, were just never good at um, composing um, music. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, <laughs> I wish that was a lie. And so, so there's just no music for you to perform. So no, you cannot do that. And at that point I was just like, huh. And so I, from there, I think I started searching and um, yeah. And what did the, the search look like? Because a lot of people don't even know where to start. Do you just go to Google and type in who are the women composers? How did you do it? <laughs> sure. Well, I think at that point, I was just about to graduate and uh, something happened with my credits. I needed one more credit for the undergrad and I was so mad. But um, but I found a course that I was able to take. It was a women's studies course. Hmm. And I, you know, was first approached with intersectionality and I was reading all this beautiful literature and then I was connecting this literature um, to music and and kind of just like I would see maybe relationships of between artists and I would like kind of like find music by female composers through that, through writing. And I think that's kind of where um, the delving into reading and then finding music um, related to that kind of started. Yeah. Based on your experiences in that uh, women's studies course, is the marginalization of women creators something that's exclusive or unique to classical music? Or did you notice that across disciplines? 
oh, across disciplines. Yeah. Oh wow! Absolutely. Wow! Wow! It's 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 hard to I guess it's not hard to believe because we're living in the in the status quo of it. But even you know as uh, as late as last year, there was a study done that showed that less than eight percent of the music performed by orchestras uh, in the United States and across Europe was uh, was by women composers. Eight a little less than eight percent actually. We can talk about, you know, our reactions to that. We can get into, you know, the the, the reasons. But I wonder how you view uh, the responsibilities in changing that status quo. Is it all mm -hmm. on the conductors? Should musicians just strike and refuse to play until there's more representation? What are your ideas about fixing the issue? Yeah. Um, well, the music exists, you know, and I and I think. Um, but I also think there's probably more to be made. So I think at first I wonder um, about grant funding and I wonder about organizational support and I wonder uh, what organizations or um, funds are doing to, to make sure that the language in applications is um, not barring women or people of color from um, even applying to receive funding um, to build their art and support them. Um, so I think I think that would be my first question. Um, and then outside of that, uh, I think <laughs> I think the audience plays a big role um, in what's possible because if what the audience asks, I think the organization will try to give. And so like what is the audience doing to are they are they writing in are they calling in are they specifically asking um for this need to be fulfilled and then beyond that um the conductor and the board that is such a it's such a um the board of a nonprofit is such a um important relationship and i think that if if um if there are diversity statements and and things within an organization um, making sure the organization is um, looking to those and every um, decision that needs to be made. Um, and as, especially in regard to programming, I think is the most important thing. Um, but um, yeah, it. I think with a helpful board who really cares about this, and I think with um, a conductor who's really trying and management who's supporting the conductor, I think um, I think there could be really, really great change, but um, but at least from my experience, there's a lot from these three entities. At least there's a lot of push and pull, and there's a lot of politics that make um, change very tricky. Oh yeah, for sure. You you mentioned audiences. I want to go back to that. I agree that uh, what audiences want, arts institutions, orchestras will try to give. I think that's many orchestras' justification for the status yes. quo. You know. Yes. So I wonder what your ideas are on expanding the uh, perspective of audiences toward them wanting something that's different. At this point, I think we're still living in an ecosystem where a typical audience member has an idea about what the orchestral experience is. I wonder if you've thought much about how to expand that for the audience toward the goal of them asking their arts institutions to give them something different. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think that's what I was trying to do. I've been trying to do with my live events that have kind of just started building, but, um, but my last show in the fall, um, I it was all about storytelling 
and then showcasing the story through the music that these composers have written. So it was me telling my personal narrative along with sharing like the lives and stories of Margaret Bonds and Florence Price, William Grant Still. Um, um, through, through like showing all of our humanness, I found the audience to be so receptive and uh, to the, you know, this change in programming. Um, it almost created like a need, like a want for um, more diverse programming. So I think if we can maybe innovate um, the classical music performance, if we can um, maybe do a little bit more teaching um, on the stage, I think we could find that people grow to love, <laughs> grow to love our music, you know, and um, and be more receptive to it. But I do think it that will take some, a little bit more heavy lifting and a little bit more um, innovation as far mm -hmm. as performance goes. Yeah, I wonder if you'll talk more about those uh, live events because, you know, mm -hmm. of course, podcasting is a great way to get uh, the, the word out and to raise awareness, but setting up live events must be very different than setting up microphones and editing audio. It seems like there are a lot more steps involved. Yeah, sure. Well, I use all the same research and, um, um, that I, that I do, but yeah, it's, uh, and there are a lot more steps. I think the last show, um, which was my biggest, I partnered with a local, uh, orchestra and, um, which was amazing. And I sat on stage, and you know, wove the stories, shared shared the tales, and um, and then they would perform with us with, with me. And I have some other stuff coming up that is a little bit broader, um, where I want to play with mixed media. I want to have a guest artist from somewhere that's not here, um, and really kind of expand, like, um, yeah, what we could actually be doing with the orchestra. Have you faced much pushback? I wonder. We we like to think of this as being all positive and all oh, we're we're moving the industry in a in a new direction. But there are people who, at the end of the day, like the status quo and want to maintain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, yes, I have experienced the pushback. <laughs> Especially, I I sat on a board for Radio Boise. I sat um on the orchestra committee, and I think that's where I discovered um, <laughs> where all the pushback uh, lies, uh, where where it generally stems from. Um, so I think. But I also live in a place where there are a lot of creators and people, gatekeepers, if you will, mm. that um, are really are trying. And so um, they have just offered me all the tools when I um, wanted to do this performance with the orchestra. She said, what would you do with my orchestra? And I told her exactly what she, I would do. And she was like, here you go. And here's nothing in the, impeding you in the, your creation. Um, and my newest project that I'm working on is the same, like here's the money and the tools and the venue and all set design and everything, here you go. And um, what are you gonna do with it? And so I think I've just been lucky. I think that comes with being here for so long and knowing so many people. I don't know if it would be the same in a bigger space, um, but um, but yes, there's a lot of difficulty uh, <laughs> in, in maybe in other um, scenarios. Yeah, you actually mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about your relationship with uh, the Boise area seems like a, a huge uh, 
tool that that you utilize as you know as classically trained musicians we often grow up in one place go to school somewhere else and then hop around waiting for that that permanent gig i wonder how much you attribute just your being on the ground being a part of the community to your success so far oh i think that is completely why uh it's i've been so successful and not come um, across so many hurdles um, or as many hurdles as I expected. I think, um, yeah, I think I've just built really positive relationships that have allowed for me to create in the way that I dream of creating. Um, I think it would be very, and I always wanted to be that traveling musician, musician who got to study somewhere else and got to, um, you know, have all these connections elsewhere. Um, and so that's always been something that I've, uh, uh, been saddened by, but then I think if I hadn't have lived this life, um, I probably, you know, would not be able to make the moves that happen. How do you negotiate the the financial side of things? I'm sure that there are organizations or even uh, individuals who want to do something, but at the end of the day, you know, we can't pull a, a venue out of our back pocket. We can't pull an orchestra out of our back pocket. I wonder if that's an aspect of the work that you've had to directly engage. Hmm. I don't think I have. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> That's that privilege talking. Right? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think that has to just be lucky because of where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of of where you're at, you know, one of the the buy-ins that I've been able to cultivate when I work with other institutions is having those institutions to really think about the communities in which they exist. I'm from Memphis, you know, I'm a majority black city. There are places like Atlanta and, and Detroit uh, previously, maybe not these days, but previously Washington, D.C. So it's very easy to make the case, look, you have uh, a lot of diversity in your community. They want to be seen. This is the why. In a place like Boise, I would imagine that that argument doesn't necessarily apply or maybe not apply in the same way. I wonder how you've uh, navigated that. Yeah, I think uh, it does not apply. You know, <laughs> we I think it's 89% white population here, 2% um, black population, you know, very, it's very isolating, I guess, demographically. Um, but um so I have not, uh, I have not thought about demographic in my work because I think if I were to do that, people would be easy to dismiss mm -hmm. the work, mm -hmm. you know. So. And I don't want to erase the diversity that does exist there, even We're if it's marginal. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if you could, you know, so you say two percent black. What, 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 what are some of the other uh, communities that have? Uh, that are represented there that you've had the opportunity to engage with? Yeah, well, Latinx communities, obviously that's where I've spent so much time. I think there are like 9% Latinx here. Um, <clears throat> some Pacific Islander, like 0.2%, I think that's what it said. Uh, last I looked, um, there are communities here, you know, they're small and maybe separated, but, you know, we're here. So with so with that small community, do you see it more of a challenge or maybe an opportunity? I, I, I remember being uh, I'm thinking back to my days living in New Hampshire. There were so few black people. We were tight and we really stuck together and we were really able to to do things. Do you do you see the marginal numbers as more of a challenge or maybe an opportunity? I think I see it as opportunity because. 
because I have to see it as an opportunity, sure. Sure. you know? Um, yeah. And through through that opportunity, you know, there are so many different skill sets and 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 interests. So I, I wonder if you could uh, speak to that aspect of community, bringing various resources together for a, a shared goal. Sure. I mean, that's something that I'm just beginning to do. I mean, um, up until recently, I've just been kind of, you know, working from where I have been spending my most energy, you know, in classical music within the band scene. And so I think um, in the things that I am about to begin working on, that is where I'm trying to bring in more of the community. And so I can let you know, I could keep it posted. Yeah, yeah. Are, are, are there any uh, upcoming things that you could sort of uh, give us a, a preview about or what's what what's in store? I cannot preview yet. <laughs> keep it close to the chest that's, that's... I know I'm sorry <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no worries at all I wonder um, you know if you're comfortable again talking about uh, Boise and, and the state of Idaho there are so many preconceived notions that you know I carry that many people carry who have never been in the area, you know, specifically when it comes to the uh, social and cultural politics of the area. I mean, how does how does that play a role in in, in the work that you're doing? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, I mean, it is a very right leaning state. Um, I think. And because our audiences tend to that sort of perspective as well, for the most part, I think that makes the work slow. It makes us have moments of possibility that are all like taken away um, um, by next season, you know? And so I think, I think for me, at least, I'm just working from the small efforts, you know, from, from relationships with people from teaching students and then trying to broaden out because I yeah because I feel like the yeah it's tricky it's tricky here one of one of the things I've, I've thrown this idea at a lot of people I, I wonder what you think about it it's hard for me to connect uh, contemporary social conservatism to Beethoven and Mozart my thinking is that if we really want to build bridges, this whole, you know, um, super patriotic way of thinking could be applied to orchestral programming instead of more Beethoven and more Mozart. Why not Amy Beach? This was an American composer. Let's let's put her first. You know, I wonder <laughs> what, what, what if you think that's sort of a, a viable starting place, considering the, the social politics that surround you. I love that. That would be beautiful. <laughs> and I think I think that's important. It's it's about yeah, it's about understanding where we are we are and 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 utilizing the narrative to to kind of like pull in, you know, diverse work. And mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I yeah, I love that actually. I've I've often advocated, and I know that this would not go over well in most places, but I've often advocated for a 100% black season. Okay, you're dedicated to this work. How about next season? Everybody that you program is black, and 60 to 70% of them of those black people are women. Okay, so we we, we can see that that has yet to happen. I can still sure. advocate for it, but I wonder uh, what you would consider um, an equitable 
percentage or at, at what point would you consider, okay, this organization is doing something worthwhile. They actually mean the work. Is a one-off okay? Are five performances okay? How do, how, do you, how do you think about progress? How do you think about measuring progress? I mean, here, I think I've seen what the one-off looks like and I've seen what the, um, you know, sprinkle of um, female composers or composers of color in a program looks like. And to me, it just looks like tokenization, mm -hmm. honestly. And so um, and so I think when, when works by women or people of color can be programmed and it not be conversation, it not be surprise, like I think that's when we might have reached some sort of equitable moment. I wish I had a number what yeah. I do not, but I love that hundred percent vibe. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and to be fair, I think setting numbers really creates the opportunity for someone to just only check a box. Okay, now that we've done this percentage, we don't have to do any more. So I do understand sort of the the problematic nature of setting benchmarks in that way. But I don't know. I'm, I'm I, I kind of like the idea of a hundred percent. We've had a hundred percent European seasons. Why not a hundred percent black? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's facts. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Going going back to uh, uh, the Classical Queens podcast, I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit about uh, its production, uh, coming up with ideas. How do you uh, put it together episode to episode and decide which queens to, to highlight? Yeah. I mean, while I was in my master's program, I was just kind of creating a list. Like in my readings, I just see a name randomly in a text and be like, I wonder who they are and just write it down. And so then after um, I utilize some of that information in my, you know, in essays or whatever. But then since then, I've, I've done more work to um, find out who these women are. And so um, honestly, I just decide uh, who I want to build an episode on based on um how I connect with their story um, that week. And um, if I have something um, impactful to like, you know, bring to the table, um, it's really that simple. Uh, it's just very feelings based. Um, but um, as far as production, um, I had, most everything is set up pre-recorded, all the inter little interludes and things like that. So all I really do is uh, spend the time researching, writing, writing the show, and then recording and just doing some little editing um, and then just bring it all together. So it's rather simple because that's all I can do for right now as life is a little too varied. Uh, but but yeah, that's that's about it. I mean, and you know, you, you you say it's simple, but there are a lot of people out there who, once they really got into what podcasting entails, would see that it's not <laughs> always so simple. Was there a learning curve for you? Did you already have experience in production and, and, and audio and that sort of thing? Mm -mm. I actually had been working on it for like a year before I ever released the first episode because I was feeling very um, technology insecure. Um, <laughs> and it took me quite a while to just really understand um how to even set the vocal levels and how to, you know, utilize logic and um, stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, I think once I finally kind of got my head around it and had a couple episodes ready to go, then, then I, then I started releasing, but you're right. It is a lot of work. And, <laughs> and I do sometimes struggle with my output just because um, there's, there's so much performing going on and, um, and I have yet been able to shift my focus to to lean more into my podcast um but it's something i'm working on um 
but but I I love doing it and I love researching and um, it's I think the thing that has been getting me through the last couple of years it's feels really rewarding. How, how do you manage the space between all of the different things you're doing? You know, we can talk about the podcasting, we can talk about your orchestral playing, we can talk about your non-classical performance. Is there a, a through line or are you just always, is your mind just always going everywhere trying to keep up with yourself? <laughs> I mean, for a long time, uh, we could say pre-COVID, I was like, I was doing all this. I was just trying to build my career here and I was trying to learn as much as I could so that one day I would have enough tools to kind of like, you know, leave, fly, fly out of the nest. And so, <laughs> and so, so yeah, so that's where that mindset came from. So at that point, it was just like my mind is everywhere. And it just has to be because, um, because I haven't had as many opportunities. And so I need to create those opportunities um, and continue to learn and study. So that way I have a chance somewhere else. Um, and so that was that was then, but I think since since after COVID, uh, early COVID, um, after that, I, I have realized that I, I want to focus on this activist in art music um, space. Um, and so I've been, I have been trying, I am on a, a leave of absence from the Phil this year, um, a little sabbatical because I wanted to focus up and I wanted to figure out like, how could I make this possible? I've been doing a lot of grant writing just to see if anything comes to fruition so I can, you know, have more focus. And um, yeah, I've been just, I've been making some tough decisions this year so that I am not um, living the same life I was before where I was just kind of everywhere. I wonder how you're going to engage uh, your job with the orchestra once you do come back. It's not that I'll, I'll speak for myself. It's not that I, you know, again, hate Beethoven symphonies, but I just can't imagine dedicating a week of my time to one of them. You know, especially sure. <laughs> if I've played it uh, uh, hundreds of times or even just dozens of times. Have you thought about how your work now, especially at the intersection of arts and activism, will impact your return to the orchestra? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Sit there and, and play and stay quiet and deal with the conductor and all of that? <laughs> yeah, I have absolutely been thinking about it. And I have not made, yet made a decision I, uh, about what might be best. But I do know that I've really struggled being a part of the, the section. I've really struggled not dealing I've been, I've been i've been struggling with programming and and i don't and yeah i think i'm trying to figure out can i handle it like can i continue to make it work or do i just need to you know do something a little different so when you think about performing with the orchestra next to thinking about performing uh with your mariachi group or in the uh, psychedelic prog rock is it just the repertoire that makes the difference? Or are there other variables that make those other ones more gratifying or more engaging mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, you know, the classical music world, like the orchestral space, it always felt a little, um, it just felt lonely. Like, I don't wanna say cold, but I think that's how I felt. Like, I always felt really lonely. So when I joined the Mariachi, like, you have this group of people of like 12 people around you just like holding you up like if you forget a word you can look at someone they'll be like girl that's what it is and then you can continue your song like you have a support system in the way that i never have experienced in an orchestra um despite having like amazing people i get to work with you know um and so um 
I think that I think and same with when it's like a family. I think that's how the orchestra could feel. Um, and I think if it did feel like that, it would be easier to, you know, stick with it and keep building with it. But but it feels so distant from like from who I am right now that I think that's where the struggle lies. I know exactly what you mean. You know, my my first professional uh, job was with the Detroit Symphony. I had a, a two year contract with them. And I remember, you know, after my very first rehearsal, it was like, OK, everyone just shows up and plays the music. And then when it's done, everyone just leaves. And, you mm -hmm. know, coming up in, in music school, there is always a degree of, oh, well, let's go grab lunch afterwards or let's, you know, hang out or and, and, yeah. and do X, Y and Z. Is there. I hate to I hate to say, is there a road toward that for the uh, professional field? Because I, I like to keep things open to possibilities. I guess really the question is, from your uh, perspective, is it worth the labor at this point? Is it worth transforming orchestras? Is 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 doing that work worth it? Because you know, for for most people, the work doesn't actually manifest until you're gone or you're you're out of the biz. So you know, are you willing to be that person is it worth it to you to be that person to try to change the orchestra into a warmer space mm. <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't have the answer to that question i'll i'll say <laughs> no i mean these are just the things that i dwell on every day um i don't know yeah um <laughs> and i i would like to say that i could do that but um as of right now, I actually, I absolutely don't know. And uh, so I think some of the things and the work I'm like currently pursuing um, is more about how do we create like a new space for the orchestra? Um, not necessarily spending as much time trying to change, you know, what already exists, but create something new, utilizing, you know, the same instruments and Mm -hmm. but different music, you know, different, you know, new composers, people of color, you know, like, I don't know. So I, so I really think, I don't know if orchestral reform, you know, um, it, you know, when it will stick. I don't know if it, if it will ever stick, but I do think that um, something new could be created. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's think, what I'm thinking about these days. I think about that famous Audre Lorde quote, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And, mm. and orchestras have to be the same way. We can't transform this place with the same old instrumentation, certainly not the, the same old repertoire, even if the work is not yours to do, not ours to do. There might be people out there who are interested in working toward that uh, orchestral reformation. I wonder what your call to action would be to those people. If someone were to walk up to you and say, I want to dedicate my life as a musician, as an arts administrator to changing orchestras, what would you tell them? Hmm. Um, I would say. Other than good luck. <laughs> I mean, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I would say make sure you have a community behind you like make sure you're you're not in it alone because it'll feel quite thankless if you're doing it alone I think ugh, I would remind them that the process is infinitely slow <laughs> and as we take one step forward there will be two back or more and yeah I would just wish them luck yeah
<laughs> how can people uh, listen to classical queens and maybe even keep up with some of your upcoming projects that you can't yet preview but <laughs> i know <laughs> i'll spill it soon no worries um, um you can find me on social media on instagram at classical queens i have a website classicalqueens.com and then um, you can listen to my podcast on all podcast platforms where we listen to podcasts yeah that's about what it and what are you listening to now musically? Of course, we celebrate the queens of music, even outside of classical throughout the year. But for this Women's History Month, who are you mm -hmm. listening to? Who are you encouraging other people to listen to? Sure. I've been listening to Sudan Archives. I love her new album. I listened to SZA's new drop. Um, I love some Lizzo. We need some bops, you know. Um, I think the, um, and Tank and the Bangers, you know, some progressive progressive um, R&B. Yeah, that's why that's where I've been lately. <laughs> by Sudan Archives. At the end of our uh, conversation, I asked Jessica, who is she listening to? Who should folks be paying attention to? And of the people she named, Sudan Archives was the name that I didn't recognize. So I'm, I'm so glad to have discovered her music. You know, you can't really hear it there, but Sudan Archives is also a violinist. She has a, a, a tiny desk that you can find on YouTube that highlights her violin playing. But like Jessica, she has just gone far beyond that traditional scope of what it means to play that instrument and has created uh, so, so much more. One of the questions that I asked Jessica that I wanted to ask you. So when I think about the state of Idaho, I'm thinking about a place that is just mostly white and that's not a, a judgment or anything. That's just, you know, what, what it probably is. And, and I'm sure I'm right. I asked Jessica if the conversation from her perspective of uh, being more inclusive and diverse in our programming is more difficult in places that don't have the diversity. So for example, if I go to the Memphis Symphony where I'm from mm -hmm. and make the point that, look, most of us here are black. In, in this city, there needs to be some representation. I feel like that's an easy argument to make. That argument can't be made everywhere in places like Idaho. I imagine that the conversation comes with far more difficulty and nuance in Europe. Do you think geography and demographics in that way impacts the discussion from that's your a, perspective? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that uh, to go along with all the things that we've been saying over the years is that the, the programming needs to reflect the audience. Mm -hmm. And so it's not going to make sense everywhere. However, comma, you do need exposure to mm -hmm. it just for, just for your knowledge right. that, that it's out there. And plus a lot of it is great. 
Oh yeah. So wouldn't you want to know about it? Mm-hmm. That, that's my response to it. You yeah, know, that it, curiosity piece has to be there. Sure, I think it needs to be ratioed to your to who you're serving. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely go check out Classical Queens. I'll have a, a link in the description. Once again, so grateful to be able to dialogue with another podcaster. You know that th- those are always the easy interviews. Right. Podcasters know how to talk and talk into a mic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're gonna uh, go into our final movement here. We're gonna celebrate uh, Wayne Shorter. A little bit with some of his words as featured in Opus 72 of the Trilogy podcast. I believe that's the right number. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong there. But to get us into this final movement, we're going to listen to a little bit of a tune called Orbits by Wayne Shorter. part is hard like that that's a that's a rap beat waiting to happen that bum 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 you know if you just if you just loop that and put an 808 under that oh yeah we we got some music (laughs) i was about to say what's hard about it oh no not not difficult so you need to decolonize your mind see i know i know a middle-aged white man but before we get into these audio excerpts that uh i I wanted to explore I, i i just have to plug this book. It's called Reaching Beyond. It's a dialogue between Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, and Daisaku Ikeda, who is the Buddhist philosopher. And one of the main themes of the book is the idea of musical improvisation only being one type of improvisation and maybe how teaching musical improvisation, especially to younger kids, younger musicians, can inspire improvisation outside of music, namely in dialogue. Oh, okay. You you work in radio, you know, and in classical radio, but I think across the radio industry, there has to be this conversation of the improvisation of dialogue being the difficult thing or the or the scary thing. It's one thing to write a, a 30 second or even a 60 second break that's just brilliant and really tugs at the heartstring. It's another thing to open the mic without a plan and to do that very same thing. You mean work without a net? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a skill that has to be sharpened. <laughs> how have, how have you, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that being on the Triloquy podcast has sharpened that skill for you has definitely sharpened that skill for me, but is that something that was ever a part of your teaching radio or your even being in radio, really diving into and valuing the skill of, that sort of improvisation. That's basically where 90% of the work went. Mm-hmm. How are you going to think on your feet? Yeah. But the gig that I'm in now is hooked up to a network and time matters. Sure. So sure. you, so I work with scripts or bullet points just to know when to shut up. Right. Right. Because otherwise I'll just keep going and all of a sudden, you know, we're into the news window and I'm <laughs> still going on about something. So those time parameters and all of those r- rules and, and things aside, do you think there's value in the radio host, even the classical radio host who has the room to 
kind of ramble for a couple minutes and and really spin a yarn as context for the for the music. Is that are you asking me if that's a good thing? Yeah, if that if you think from your perspective that's something of value. I think when when it comes to radio programming, we tend to think, oh, well, you know, the listener isn't there to hear us gab. They they want to listen to some music. But if we can really pull the heartstrings with a, a 30 second break, really speaking for the heart from a couple minutes, again, if you don't have certain parameters you have to stay inside of, from my perspective, that would be even of, of greater value. There's even more opportunity. There. Yeah, that's that's the goal. And obviously you are going to be hard pressed to find a lot of people who can do that over 90 seconds, 120 seconds or longer. Mm. That's, that's just my opinion. Well, you know, we, we sit here and talk for a couple hours. So the talent is there. (laughs) Hello, radio stations. Anyway, here's a, (laughs) so uh, again, as I mentioned, I had the, the extreme honor of featuring Wayne Shorter on the Triloquy podcast uh, with help from Caesar, Caesar, and Wayne Shorter are friends because uh, they share, we all share the same Buddhist practice. Okay. So it's, it's something how that community can just uh, help help make some things happen. Uh, so we talked for over two hours. I, I listened to the whole, you know, uh, unedited thing. What made it to the podcast was about 38 minutes worth of dialogue. And I've, I've cut that down uh, even further just to highlight some things that really uh, stuck out to me. So here's, here's one of the uh, first things that Wayne Shorter speaks to. To be unattached at the right time, but if you attach to something too long, it doesn't free you to be open-minded and and something that simple. So uh, to be in a state of zero gravity, it's it's, uh, finding out what um, mistaking the constant for something that's only temporary. Mistaking the constant for something or or, or mistaking something temporary for constant. When I hear that, I think about stages in my life, you know, something that when you're 17 years old and you're in love and you're being loved forever, in retrospect, it, it's silly to think about that, right? So mm-hmm. if we could have that same perspective on many things in our lives, even as we grow older, I think there's something to that. But certainly with music, there's this idea that classical programming is this one thing, this is what it is. But even looking back strictly within the Western European confines of music, it changed. It evolved. Mm-hmm. We're just in this time now where we're stuck and consider, you know, something that is ultimately temporary as constant. This is what classical music is. So we're talking about uh, the ability to just be in the moment because that's right. the that's the spot that it's going to matter. You're not worried about, oh, does this honor the tradition or what What are people in the future going to think about uh, what I'm playing or writing here? Mm-hmm. Um, but isn't what you're thinking and feeling in the moment the hardest thing to escape? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm dealing yep. with that now. Yep. There's times where I can't keep the grief away mm-hmm. and, and that's just going to take time. And the impermanence feels so freaking permanent yeah what do we do how do how do we how do you get away from that (laughs) i i chant but i think for for people who are interested in that sort of thing it just requires that deep down understanding and acceptance of exactly what he's talking about i happen to have the belief that death and life are temporary. Neither of those things are forever. And that is to be celebrated. You know, you, you come over here every week, 
you know that I keep roses all around the house. Sometimes the roses are are fresh and beautiful as they are happen to be today. Sometimes they're drooping and and looking a little dry. But that's just sort of my everyday reminder that everything is temporary, but there's beauty and understanding that uh, temporary nature of, of so many things. A bouquet of dead roses, I think, is a vibe. That That is an aesthetic, and it definitely sure. has its place just as much as the, the fresh-cut bouquet. So you know, as difficult as it is, I think a part of our mental health, a, a part of our happiness is really working really hard and, and, and doing our hardest to, as just as Wayne Shorter was saying, not mistaking the temporary for something constant, just letting go of that attachment and enjoying the fact that every part of our lives is is temporary, even even the grief, even the realities that create that grief. Yeah. I think that I'm spending too much time looking over my shoulder right now and wishing that I had done things differently or more or whatever, what have you. That, 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 that's Look, Scott, that, that's a thought that I've had about you a lot and, and something that I just apply to myself. You know, am I looking forward more often or am mm-hmm. I looking backward more often and I, I I stay in a more positive state of mind by looking forward and even by looking forward and you know putting intentionality behind what that forward looks like the past isn't changed but the past is changed the context of of the past if I take something really harmful or hurtful that happened to me and use that as the springboard to do something else. It doesn't change what happened, but it changes the circumstances of what happened and sure. the context of what happened. And I think that's really important to at least try to to pursue. Let's try. Here, here's another part of uh, the the dialogue I had with with Mr. Shorter. I went to Japan to, to do a concert there, and I talked with uh, President Shuji. He was a, the president of Japan of Japan, Sokugakai, when Daisokugakai became international president. And he, I have what he wrote in my book, one of my um, first books that you have, he did a diagram of what he called the musical Buddha, uh, not just musical, they said the, the, the one, the Buddha who carries sound and whatever all that means through the universe. And he, he did like a universe thing and he did the Japanese uh, characters, and he was saying, the interpreter would tell this is like you here, and with not just a message of music, but it's, it's telling you what your mission is. Because people ask me now, do you miss playing the horn for three years? I said, no, I, I don't miss it. I, I might try to get back to it a little bit. But um, the, the mission is in everything we, we do. So I, I don't want to wrap everything up in this opera that I'm working on. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's an opera after all. It's, it's a, you know, man. The context of what he's talking about there, you know, uh, visiting Japan and, and having someone tell him uh, or affirm for him his musicianship being an example of that constant of not that temporary, even, Hmm. you know, over over the course of many lives. For me, that was very uh, impactful for, for folks who don't know that specific trip to Japan by Wayne Shorter 
followed of the sudden death of his wife. She died in a in, in an airplane tragedy. And something that I remember, you know, most fondly from my conversation with uh, with Wayne is that he was dedicated to living an even happier life on her behalf. She can't live, at least in this lifetime, and experience the joys of life. So he felt like he had to do double duty and experience the joy that she can't experience for her. For mm-hmm. me, that was very, very impactful. But, beautiful. But, but, but back to just the, the point of what he was saying there, not wrapping up a part of your mission as the mission, but your mission manifesting in everything you do. That is an example of something that I wanted to bring forward here because I think in classical music, and I can certainly speak from this as a uh, as a black person, it always feels like or always felt like my job, my profession, you know, what I've dedicated so much time to live separately from the rest of my life and mm. my my lived experience. And I think as classical musicians or folks who work in the classical industry we could really benefit from figuring out how we can find a through line between all the things and live more in that truth and and in that mission mm-hmm. as opposed to being defined by one small part of our lives you know especially our our jobs how do you engage the idea of working in the classical industry in the way that you do finding that through line i'm sure there are aspects of your life or just core values that you hold that you can share through that medium. Let's say if let's say you are anti-war, you can take Prokofiev's war sonatas and and talk about you know peace and and what Prokofiev was responding to and and those sorts of things. Do you find yourself able to identify those things? Is it more work than not to try to uh, connect mm, those yeah, dots? I, how do you how do you engage? That? I probably make it more work than it needs to be. Hmm mainly because in when I'm writing a break, I don't want to beat the listener over the head with what I'm saying. Sure. Like I said a couple opuses ago, I lay out the facts like a picnic. Mm-hmm. You will walk away with it. You will walk away with something different than the next person or the next. But the general idea would, would be clear, but obviously open-ended enough that people would find their own value or... Uh, or be pissed off uh, either way <laughs> by what I had to lay out. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I feel like that's what triloquy is for me. That's what got me into broadcast in the first place. I have this belief. I can't quite manifest it playing this Rachmaninoff symphony, second bassoon in the Knoxville symphony. So how do I do that? So, you know, that that's how that journey began for me. And I feel like I'm constantly searching for ways to really solidify that even more. I can, you know, draw a line from here to there between the different things that I do. But I feel like that's where that happiness and where that fulfillment that we saw from Wayne Shorter really comes from, just the obviousness of the through line and the mission being a part of everything instead Mm. of the part being considered uh, the whole. There's one final uh, statement by Wayne Shorter that I want to make sure that I uh, included here. Never give up. Never give up. Mm. There are so many times when, if I'm going to be honest and vulnerable, where I feel like giving up is what I feel like doing. Again, I mentioned that our friend Caesar helped uh, put this put this conversation together. I was actually talking to Caesar last night, and he, as he always does, made the point that in 1960, whatever, when they hired the first black musician, Sanford Allen, the the violinist, 
you would think that he would be followed by another and another, and we would see a a slightly more diverse New York Philharmonic. But in this year of Beyonce, 2023, there is still one black musician in the New York Philharmonic. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the change can't happen? Does it mean that all of the work of our predecessors uh, when it comes to uh, decolonizing or at the very least diversifying classical music was that all for naught? Are, are we wasting our time? Sometimes those thoughts go through my mind and that feeling of wanting to give up mm-hmm. really comes to the front. Yeah. But when I hear Wayne Shorter say things like never give up, it's, it's hard to consider. It's, yeah. hard to, it's hard for me to consider giving up, even if, it, even if it does seem like the work will never really manifest. Right. I, I only feel that way in the morning. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but no. In all seriousness, um, the the human being was built to struggle. Mm. We have done nothing but uh, ev- through all of even the, the evolutions that we've taken that you can that you can witness. Right, we have struggled against something, and. I think that that's going to be the way of things until we take our last breath. There will be something that we are struggling with or trying to improve or change. So, and I agree with you with struggle being one of those realities that we have to deal with. We can't escape struggle. You know, the only people without problems are in the graveyard. And I'm, and by no means am I framing struggle as a negative. Sure. Right, you know, a, a, a struggle is that yin and yang, the give and take. The, right, the, yeah, and I, and I think that's my point. If the struggle is something that we cannot escape from, is it possible for us to contextualize that struggle in a way that does not keep us in a constant mindset of oppression or mm-hmm. sadness mm-hmm. or grief or whatever? I believe that that can happen. I believe that no matter what we're going through, we can find a way to pull joy out of it. Wayne Shorter was a huge example of that. You know, he lost his first wife and his daughter within a year. I could never imagine what it's like to lose a child, but I do know that Wayne Shorter was somebody filled with joy, filled with mission and, you know, joy and mission that uh, connected to so many people, millions of people around the world, all the way to us celebrating his life here today. Mm. See, he mm-hmm. he lives even beyond his body, he uh, beyond this existence, because as dead as his body is right now, his legacy is alive and will always be alive. And that's what I hope for the classical music industry. I hope that we could take the opportunity to really reframe that phrase and that idea of classical music toward the celebration of more, the veneration of more, and uh, inspiring people to live happier lives in that in that struggle. I hope they're inspired. Yeah. Well, that's what uh, I have for this week. Hopefully, um, I don't I don't struggle with. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I've been going through my whole uh, gastro. Uh, you know, my my food changes. I know sw- it. Switching over to plant based. So. Every meal, I'm like, okay, is this gonna is this gonna be something that's gonna be friendly to me, or is it gonna be a struggle? So I, I guess we'll see. We're, we're recording two behind, you know, pulling back the curtain. We're recording two of these today. So if I'm doing a whole bunch of hiccuping or something <laughs> next week, as y'all hear this, you'll you'll hear the manifest manifestation of struggle. But I'm gonna do it with a smile because you know that's what it's all about. <laughs> Struggles what we do. Yep. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. 